If it's Monday, the reaction and the global fallout after President Biden's historic visit to war-torn Kyiv as the war in Ukraine nears the one-year mark. Plus, tensions rising further with China as the U.S. warns Beijing against providing Putin, Putin's troops with lethal aid against Ukraine. And the legacy of Jimmy Carter, the nation's longest living president, is spending his final days at home in hospice care surrounded by family. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Yamiche Alcindor in Washington, in for Kristen Welker. We begin today with President Biden's historic trip to an active war zone as the administration redoubles its support for Ukraine one year after the Russian invasion. This morning, President Biden made an unannounced visit to Kyiv, becoming the first U.S. president in modern history to visit a war zone that did not have an active American military presence. With President Zelensky at his side, President Biden reaffirmed U.S. support for Ukraine while announcing an additional $500 million in military aid. For all the disagreement we have in our Congress on some issues, uh, there is significant agreement on support for Ukraine. Because this is so much larger than just Ukraine. It's about freedom and democracy in Europe. It's about freedom and democracy writ large. And I'm here to show our unwavering support for the nation's independence, their sovereignty, and... Uh, and territorial integrity. You know, one year later, Kyiv stands, and Ukraine stands, democracy stands, the Americans stand with you, and the world stands with you. Moments ago, reporters traveling with the president reported that he is now back in Poland as we learn more about the operational details of his visit to Kyiv, which the White House says took months of planning in secret. We'll have more on those details in a moment. As you just heard, in a sign of the dangers that still permeate everyday life in the Ukrainian capital, air raid sirens could be heard as both leaders paid their respects to the lives lost in the war at the Wall of Remembrance. The president visit comes as a pivotal moment for the war and the U.S., as Vice President Harris formally accused Russia of crimes against humanity over the weekend. As first reported by NBC News, the trip also comes as U.S. officials now believe China may be providing Russia with non-lethal military assistance in the war in Ukraine. And they're considering sending lethal aid as well. A source tells NBC News that Chinese aid to Russia was an essential topic of conversation during Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting with a top Chinese diplomat at the Munich Security Conference on Saturday. And on Meet the Press, Blinken spoke to Chuck about his concerns about China helping Russia. We've seen uh, already um, over these, these past months uh, the provision of non-lethal assistance that does go directly to uh, aiding and abetting Russia's war effort and uh, some further information that we are sharing uh, uh, today and that I think uh, will be out there soon that um, indicates that they are strongly considering providing lethal assistance to, to Russia. Um, to the best of our knowledge, they what haven't form? crossed that what line yet. What form is that? But as uh, we're sharing. Yeah, in what form? Um, Chuck, I, I, uh, Chuck, I don't want to get into the, the details in this, um, uh, in, this, in this moment, but there are various kinds of lethal assistance that they are at least contemplating providing to include weapons. 
Today, China responded to the allegations not denying them, but rather telling the U.S. to stay out of its relationship with the Kremlin. Joining me now is our team of reporters, Kristen Welker in Warsaw, Poland, Richard Engel in Ukraine, Keir Simmons in Moscow, and also joining me is NBC News global security reporter Dan DeLuce. So, Kristen, of course, you would be here at the desk, but you're there covering history. So what more do we know about the planning that went into this historic trip to Kyiv, and how did this trip unfold? Well, as you laid out, Yamish, this was an incredibly dangerous trip that was months in the making. And we are told that conversations around this trip really escalated after President Zelensky made his surprise trip to the White House in December. So we are told that President Biden gave the ultimate sign off on Friday. He had dinner with the first lady on Saturday, and then early Sunday morning, he left under a cover of darkness. Really extraordinary how this played out traveling with just a small, small team of his staff, only two reporters allowed to travel with him, just really underscores the fact that they wanted to keep this under the cloak of secrecy. And we know that once he got to the Polish border, he traveled into Ukraine to Kyiv on a train, a 10-hour train ride. And we're just getting these new extraordinary images from Evan Vucci, the AP photographer who captured President Biden getting on the train. You see him there on the train during this 10-hour train ride. He is now back in Poland. And I think that here in Poland over the next two days, Yamish, you can expect to really hear him build on the message that he laid out today, that the U.S. stands with Ukraine, will continue to stand with Ukraine until the very end. He did announce that new aid package, half a billion dollars. We anticipate he's going to be announcing new sanctions as well, and he's going to be delivering that speech tomorrow night in which he will build on what we heard from the vice president, accusing Vladimir Putin of committing crimes against humanity and laying out the argument that he should be punished for that, Yamish. So expect more powerful rhetoric from President Biden tomorrow here in Warsaw. An extraordinary set of details, Kristen. And I want to ask you more about the message that you said that President Biden is sending. There's a lot of politics here, both at home and abroad. So lean more into what the president is really trying to say, what the White House is trying to say with this visit and the way that they carried it out. Well, I think that the White House is trying to say that the U.S. and the global community has to stand united with Ukraine and to further isolate Vladimir Putin. And that's the message to a very divided Congress as well. Yamish, as you know, some Republicans saying that they will not write a blank check to Ukraine. So that's going to be the challenge for President Biden heading forward. And Richard, uh, there are, of course, the people of Ukraine, um, they in some ways there was on, on the Internet, people were getting ready for this, thinking possibly the President Biden might be there. How significant is this visit for the people of Ukraine and how are they reacting? The people are reacting very positively. It's significant because of the context. Uh, we are now almost one year to the day uh, into this war. Uh, and the war was launched by Vladimir Putin and Russian forces. Uh, they, they, there was no uh, reason to launch the war. Uh, Russia is now claiming that there was a reason that, uh, that uh, Ukraine was imminently going to attack Russia. Uh, I was in this country at the time. There was no chance, no sign that, that U Ukraine was going to launch any kind of offensive action against Russia. But Russia invaded. And what we saw today in Kyiv could have looked very differently. Uh, instead of having President Biden there supporting uh, the Ukrainian president, the democratically elected uh, president and very popular president, Vladimir, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, instead we could have had 
Vladimir Putin there today uh, and this country disappear as as a nation. And and to to address your earlier question, I think that is one of the things that President Biden uh, is delivering and delivered today in this country that that many Ukrainians heard that this is not just a fight uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, not just a, a fight even for Ukraine's survival, but a fight for democracy. And the Ukrainians do believe that they're shouldering that responsibility, and they do believe they deserve help in this fight for democracy because they believe if they if it if, it, if it's not fought here, it will be fought elsewhere, and that Vladimir Putin's forces will keep going. And nowhere is that felt more acutely than out here in eastern Ukraine, because this is the the, the center of the battle these days, and this is where they want. The those weapons to come. And Richard, as you talk about the fight and the battle there, what are you seeing on the ground today? And what's the status of the, this possible new Russian offensive that is being um, seen as possibly coming any day now? Uh, well, the Russian offensive has, has already begun, but uh, it is not the kind of offensive like we saw a year ago. Uh, a year ago, it was clear Russian forces were inside Russia one day, 190,000 troops all the while, Russian officials saying that they would never invade. I was just listening to a clip from Peskov. Uh, a year ago today, he was saying that Russia has never invaded any country and it would never contemplate uh, doing such a thing. And, and Russian officials writ large were saying that, uh, that, that they would never invade uh, and then, of course, cross the border and launch the, the biggest ground assault since World War II. Uh, so it, it could have been very different, is, 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 the, is the feeling here tonight. Now, the new offensive that Russia is launching, the, the second attempt to take over this country, is much more gradual. So it's not surprising that, that you and others are, are wondering if it's even begun, because it is so... Uh, it, it is so different. The troops are already here. They're advancing slowly behind artillery, and they're frankly not having a lot of success. They're trying to push through and take this one city called Bahmut, which is not very far from here, and they probably will take it, uh, although it's possible that they won't. There have been many surprises in this war, but uh, it's not looking good right now for Ukrainian control in the city. Um, but in other places, they're not able to advance, and they're sustaining heavy losses. But the Ukrainians aren't sure how long they can keep this keep fighting off this onslaught, which is why they want more weapons and more advanced weapons and more ammunition in particular. Well, we're so lucky to have you on the ground in Ukraine, Richard. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. And Dan, uh, President Biden announced another round of weapons for Ukraine, but that does not include fighter jets. Um, those, of course, are fighter jets that President Zelensky has been asking for, from my understanding. Walk us through what, what that all means. Well, I mean, it is interesting. The president did not mention fighter jets when he spoke in Kyiv. He talked about a half billion dollars worth of aid. He talked about radars. He talked about more artillery ammunition and other weapons. But he didn't say anything about fighter jets either way. But it is interesting. If you look back over the past year, there were different weapons that at different times the Ukrainians were asking for. And initially, the White House would say that's not on the table or they were considering it or they even seemed to rule out some weapons, anti-ship missiles. Uh, they were reluctant to give them these long range high Mars rockets. But now uh, even Patriot missiles at one point didn't seem likely. So it is interesting how it's evolved. And it's something that a lot of lawmakers in Congress want to see the U.S. do to give them those fighter jets. The White House at all times, though, has had to kind of calibrate how far do they go without somehow provoking uh, some escalatory move by Putin and by Russia? Do they do they turn the war in Ukraine into something wider and more dangerous? And that's what they're always trying to debate. 
And of course, as you talk about this possibly getting more dangerous, um, there's the issue of China. How is China reacting to the U.S. accusation that China is possibly considering providing lethal support to Russia? And what might that even look like? Well, first of all, China is not really directly addressing that accusation, but they just said we're not going to listen to the U.S. lecture us about arming uh, the parties in Ukraine. They've kind of pointed the finger back at Washington and said, you know, the U.S. is providing all sorts of weapons to uh, the Ukrainian government. And therefore, you're fanning the conflict. But as far as what China might do, I think it's very telling, first of all, that it's gotten to this point that Russia is asking for help. Uh, if that's true. And then if China were make, to make that decision, that would be quite a significant move. And it, it would be a, a major change in the situation. You'd have to you have to ask yourself, does that change the course of the conflict? Does that make it more difficult for Ukraine to turn the tide? Does it give sort of a lifeline to Russia? Because Russia is under these sanctions and they are struggling to replace some of their more advanced munitions. So China could perhaps potentially, in theory, provide drones, uh, something that Russia has had to turn the Iranians for. But China is a major arms uh, producer. Uh, China could perhaps help them with some more advanced missiles. So it's a huge question mark now what China decides to do. And this meeting coming up in Moscow with the Chinese uh, senior diplomat is really significant. Certainly a lot of questions still be answered. Thank you so much, Dan, for your reporting. And Kristen, of course, back to you. President Biden is now, from, we, from what we understand, in Poland. What can we expect from that visit? And what might he want to say or do to try to really get in front of President Putin's remarks? Well, this is a high-stakes visit, Yemi. She's going to be meeting with the president of Poland. He's also going to be meeting with the Bucharest Nine. That is a group of leaders in the eastern flank. So important to have that diplomacy with them as well. And then that capstone address that he's going to deliver here in Warsaw tomorrow night, he's going to deliver it in the same place where he spoke when he visited just a month into this conflict. And I think you are going to hear him, as Richard talked about, talk about this in the context of the fight for democracy and that global leaders need to stay unified and need to continue to isolate Vladimir Putin. That that is going to be the key to bringing this conflict to an end. And again, I think you're going to hear him build on those comments that were first made by the vice president in which she accused Putin of committing crimes against humanity. I am told that he is going to not only underscore that, but push that forward as well. Yamish. Well, we'll be watching closely all of your reporting, Kristen. Thank you so much. And coming up, Washington reacts to President Biden's unprecedented visit to Kyiv today as he prepares to deliver remarks from Poland tomorrow. I'll talk to a congressman who just got back from a bipartisan trip to the Polish border next. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis takes what he is calling his anti-woke message on the road to heavily democratic cities of New York and Chicago. You're watching Meet the Press now. In the case of Russia's actions in Ukraine, we have examined the evidence. We know the legal standards. And there is no doubt these are crimes against humanity. 
Welcome back. That was Vice President Kamala Harris over the weekend delivering remarks in Munich as the U.S. formally accuses Russia of crimes against humanity. The VP's remarks are an escalation from the U.S.'s assessment last year that Russia had committed war crimes. Harris accused the Kremlin of widespread and systemic attacks against innocent civilians, vowing that those who are complicit in those crimes would be held accountable. In a statement following the vice president's remarks, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the crimes against humanity designation is reserved for the most serious crimes and underlines the staggering extent of suffering inflicted on the Ukrainian people. Joining me now is Congressman John Garamendi, who recently traveled to Romania and Poland as part of a congressional delegation conducting oversight of USAID to Ukraine. Thank you so much for being here, Congressman. Now, Vice President Harris yesterday said Russia is committing crimes against humanity. We have to underscore that again. In light of that, what additional actions should the administration, the Biden administration, take against Russia? Continue to arm. Ukraine, make sure they have the weapons that they need at the time they need them and can usefully use them. All of that is underway. I is absolutely delighted, pleased, ecstatic with the president's trip to Kiev. That's a signal to uh, to Russia, signal to Ukraine, can signal to our allies in NATO and European Union, and importantly, a signal to China that we're all in. We're not going to back away. We're not going to cut and run. So all of these things are in place. The crimes against humanity Yes, that puts Putin on notice. He better be very, very careful together with his oligarchs and other leaders. If they travel outside the country of Russia, they could be arrested and wind up at The Hague. And Congressman, should the Biden administration designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror? I think that that would be a step along the way. Uh, they, this crimes against humanity is a major, very important step. It brings the entire uh, world court into play against Russia and against the individuals that are there. A state-sponsored terrorism has other uh, issues that go with it that may not be helpful in resolving this war, specifically the ability of us to negotiate uh, with a state-sponsored terrorist. Uh, So we'll see. That's uh, a more complex issue. There's also the complex issue of President Zelensky. Um, He has said that he wants to retake all of Ukraine, including Crimea. Uh, Should the U.S. support Ukraine and the President Zelensky in doing so? Uh, We have to give this man all the support that he needs to put his country into a position of winning. Now, winning may or may not include uh, Crimea. That's to be determined. But clearly, uh, he and his and the people of Ukraine are doing extraordinary, extraordinary valid, uh, valiant and successful military action. Uh, and we need to continue to support them. And I believe that in all probability, you'll find that uh, Crimea and the Eastern Donbass will ultimately be retaken one way or the other, perhaps in negotiations. And, and Congressman, talking about support, you said that there will be another aid package for Ukraine passed by Congress. You said probably by the late spring. What are you hearing from lawmakers, especially Republicans, who, of course, are now in charge of the House and have also been critical of President Biden's visit to Ukraine and have also said that Ukraine shouldn't have a blank check? What, what, what are you hearing from those lawmakers that makes you so confident that this will get done, even if it's difficult? What's going to make it possible to continue aid for Ukraine is the extraordinary success that Ukraine has had. That small, that country is perhaps one quarter the size of Russia, and they're holding the Russia at bay. They've actually driven Russia back. 
Uh, that is a fact. And we're going to see that kind of continued support. Please keep in mind that there are Republicans and Republicans. There are the uh, ultra extreme mega Republicans, and uh, they seem to be driving uh, the Republican caucus. I don't think that's going to last for long. Uh, within the Republican caucus, there is very, very solid support for Ukraine. Uh, on the trip that we just returned from uh, uh, Romania and Poland, Chairman Rogers, chairman of the Armed Services Committee, uh, is a strong supporter, as were the other four, five members of Republicans that were on that trip. Uh, there are a handful, and they're loud, they're boisterous, and unfortunately, they have far more visibility as a result of the very close caucus vote that um, McCarthy had to endure. And Congressman, I also want to ask you about the issue of China. What have you heard about what sure. kind of lethal aid, not not non-lethal, but lethal aid that China is considering providing Ukraine? Well, first of all, we're not sure China is considering it. Surely, well, they're considering it. Are they serious about it? I think they're thinking. They're going, hmm, the president's in Ukraine. The European Union and NATO are all unified, strongly supporting. The amount of aid the United States has sent is almost is a little bit larger than what the European Union and NATO have sent. So we're all in. And China's going, oh, my, who are our trading partners? Are we going to be sanctioned? Or is, is the Chinese economy going to be hurt if they go in? And you have to be really, really careful who you go to bed with. In this case... China would go to bed with a loser. Now, go to bed with Russia, who is clearly a loser in this war and loser diplomatically around the world. And so China is going to be very careful here. They're thinking about their options. And we should be also, if the Republicans, those mega Republicans, as limited as they are, if they are successful and the United States cuts and runs and leaves Ukraine, that is a message to China that they can do most anything they want in the Western Pacific because the United States is not a stable, not a dedicated, not a committed partner through the good and the bad areas. So uh, Ukraine remains exceedingly important in Europe, but also exceedingly important in the Western Pacific and China and Taiwan and the other uh, ally countries that we have in that region. And Congressman, a quick question, because we're about to have to go, but I want to sure. ask you, the Pentagon has expanded its footprint in the Asian Pacific with new bases in Guam and the Philippines. President Biden said he's not looking for a new Cold War, but are we, are we, already, are we already there? Well, we certainly have problems with China. There's no doubt about it. We obviously have problems with Russia, uh, but I think we have an opportunity here. If we are strong, if we are determined, if we are committed then China is going to rethink its situation and uh, they can push themselves forward militarily as they have been, or they can push their, push themselves forward diplomatically and uh, with their e economic activity. And we can be partners in building a better future. We can address climate change together for a, just one example. And China is going to have to make a decision. Yeah. It's very clear to them now that the United yeah. States is not going to back away from the Western Pacific. Well, thank you so much, Congressman. Thank you.
And up next, we're live in Georgia with an update on former President Jimmy Carter's health after he entered home hospice care this weekend. But first, for today's Meet the Press Minute, reflecting on the legacy of America's longest living president. Here he is back in July of 1996, more than 15 years after leaving office, discussing Washington's evolving partisan politics. You've been out of office 16 years now. How does Washington look to you from afar? <laughs> I think Washington is much more divided, much more vituperative, much more partisan-ridden. Uh, and I really, if you'll pardon my saying, so I think much less responsible than it was then. You know, I always sent a complete budget to the Congress on time. The Congress always took my budget and amended it slightly and sent it back to me on time. The appropriations bills were always passed on time. Uh, Sixty-five percent of all the legislation that I proposed to the, proposed to the Congress was passed. You know, now everything that happens, it seems, is not done in harmony, but it's done in a partisan spirit. Welcome back. Former President Jimmy Carter has entered hospice care after his home in Plains, Georgia, at his home in Plains, Georgia, this weekend. At 98 years old, Carter is the longest living American president in history. The Carter Center says the former president made his decision to receive hospice care at home with family rather than continue medical intervention following a series of short hospital stays. And that the former president has the full support of his family and his medical team. President Biden reacted to the news, tweeting his and the first lady's support for the Carter family, saying, quote, we admire you for the strength and humility you have shown in difficult times. May you continue your journey with grace and dignity and God grant you peace. Carter, a Democrat, was elected president in 1976 and served one term alongside Ro Rosalind, his wife of 76 years. He dedicated his time post-presidency to humanitarian and spiritual work. Carter's grandson thanked the public for their support, tweeting Saturday, I saw both of my grandparents yesterday they are at peace, and as always, their home is full of love. NBC's Priscilla Thompson joins me now from Plains, Georgia. So, of course, we know the former president is at home. What more do we know about his health currently and the kind of care he's receiving at his home in Georgia? Uh, right. I mean, she remains at his home here, not far from where we are. He is under hospice care, so they are working to make him as comfortable as possible during this time. And we know that he is surrounded by family, including, of course, uh, his wife of more than 75 years, Rosalind uh, Carter. And as you mentioned, this is a, a decision that the president made after a number of uh, short hospital stays. And he decided that this was how he wanted to spend the remainder of his his time. And so, of course, this time does feel different, but it isn't the first time that uh, President Carter has had health issues. In recent years, he was diagnosed uh, with cancer in 2015, melanoma, and he defied the odds by defeating uh, that illness. But he talked about it after the fact and what that was like. And he said that at the time, he thought he may only have a few weeks uh, left, but he felt that he was at ease. He felt that he had lived a life that was full of adventure and excitement. And for that, he was grateful. And I suspect that today, as he is surrounded by his family, he is still uh, feeling that. And of course, so many people here thinking about that extraordinary life that he has led 98 years of life, as you mentioned, the longest living uh, longest living ex-president ever. Yamish. Priscilla, thank you so much for that reporting. 
Turning now to Chicago, where Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is expected to address members of the city's powerful police union any minute now. This morning, DeSantis addressed law enforcement on Staten Island, reiterating his support for law enforcement and attacking Democratic cities over the issue of crime. DeSantis' visit also comes ahead of next week's Chicago's mayoral race, where crime has been front and center. Join me now from Chicago's NBC News senior national political reporter, Natasha Karecki. So, Natasha, thanks for being here. So, Ron DeSantis is headed to Chicago to address their police union after talking on Staten Island to law enforcement there this morning. How much of all of this, him going on this sort of tour, is seen as him setting up for his possible 2024 announcement? Well, this is really seen as a ramp up. I mean, what we're going to see from Ron DeSantis in the next several weeks is a lot of Ron DeSantis outside of Florida. He's going to be going, um, hitting Alabama. He's going to be hitting Texas. Um, as you said, he was in New York and then Chicago today. This is Ron DeSantis making clear that he is going to start bringing his message, um, outside of Florida and into the rest of the country. And so this is sort of the first, you know, foray into that. Um, and a very, you know, friendly audiences. These are, these are, you know, Chicago FOP um, today. This is a Chicago police union that's headed by a very conservative leader. And um, this is going to be seen as, you know, they're very welcoming to him at the union level, at least. They're very welcoming to him. Um, and, um, you know, union police officers in general are, you know, are more conservative. They backed Trump last time. So it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic what we're seeing right now. It's definitely an interesting dynamic. And you bring up the fact that Donald Trump was backed um, by the police union president. I wonder how significant could his support and the support of the union be for Ron DeSantis if they were deciding to support him instead of maybe Donald Trump? That's significant. I mean, they're, they're, you know, backing is, is a pretty significant backing. I mean, you have, it's a, it's a very, it's a largest police union in the country. It is, um, you know, it's in every state. And I think what, um, you know, that would definitely be seen as something that where Ron DeSantis is sort of snatching something away from, from Donald Trump, where we keep hearing about the two of them and what's going to, you know, the clashes and the collision course that they're on. Um, if he's able to snag the FOP from Trump, that's going to be seen as very significant in the future. And we've been talking about the national politics, but of course, there's also the local politics, especially in a place like Chicago. You have this Chicago's mayor race. What effect, if at all, is Ron DeSantis' visit having on this, especially as Mayor Lightfoot is really being attacked and in, in, in really in pointed ways when it comes to her handling of crime in the city? Oh boy, it has it has injected this chaos into the mayor's race. I mean, the mere mention of Ron DeSantis in Illinois, you have to understand it's in, in Chicago in particular, it's so blue. It's it's so you have to be a Democrat. And um to have Ron DeSantis coming here, um, speaking before the FOP, well, the connection is one of the leader front polling leaders in this Chicago mayor's race is backed by the Chicago FOP. So now they are trying to link this candidate, Paul Vallis, to Ron DeSantis. At a very critical time, this is early voting is, is underway already. Um, the vote is February 28th, so we're right on top of it. And um, this was seen as an opening, this DeSantis visit. It was seen as an opening by people like Lori Lightfoot, who's in trouble, and um, some others to, to tee off on Paul Vallis and try to bring his numbers down at really uh, a pivotal time for him, um, as I said, with early voting going on. And a quick follow-up. You talk about the fact that the mayor is struggling. How badly is the issue of crime impacting her, or are there other factors at play? 
There's definitely other factors, but crime really blots out the sun. I mean, and, and, and you know, I, somewhat ironically, the numbers have been getting a little better under Lori Lightfoot in the last year, but it is everywhere. And it, and it, and it's, it's gun violence, it's street violence, it's petty crime, it's carjackings. It is, it's, it's everywhere. And it, it is all that people want to talk about. So the, these events that I've gone to, the Chicagoans I've talked to, that is the number one thing on their mind. They want to feel safe and they don't feel safe in their neighborhoods. They don't feel safe in the quote unquote safe neighborhoods anymore either. And this is really bringing her numbers down. And in, in, in every survey we've seen across the board, it's the number one issue. That's their number one issue is crime. And um, I, one of the recent polls I saw, it was like 73% of the people who were surveyed said they did not feel safe in their neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. Uh, definitely a, a, a race to watch as we think about the fact that the issue of crime is is impacting all of our nation. And of course, as Ron DeSantis, we're still waiting to see if he's going to announce his bid. So thank you so much, Natasha, for your reporting. Thank you. Good to be here, Yavish. After the break, former President Trump's pick to lead Michigan's Republican Party just lost to an even more extreme election-denying candidate, why it matters in a key presidential battleground state. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. As we mentioned, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has hit the road, bringing what he calls his anti-woke message with him as he appears to pave the way for an eventual 2024 run. Meanwhile, another presidential 2024 contender, former Florida, former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, told Chuck yesterday he has not yet made a decision and left open the possibility of not running if that would mean he would keep Trump from the nomination. Take a listen. If you thought your candidacy was going to contribute to the to inadvertently helping Donald Trump, would that be a reason not to run? That'd be a pretty good reason to consider not running. Absolutely. I mean, I uh, I care much more. Uh, I don't care that much about my future in the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. I care about making sure we have a future for the Republican Party. And if it if we can stop uh, Donald Trump and elect a great uh, Republican, common sense, conservative mm-hmm. leader, um, then certainly that would be a factor. Joining me now is our panel, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today, Susan Page, former Maryland Congresswoman and NBC News political analyst, Donna Edwards, and Republican strategist Rick Tyler. He is also, of course, an NBC political analyst. So thank you all for being here. Um, before we get into 2024, I want to talk, of course, Rick, and I'm come to you first, about President Biden's surprise visit to Kiev. It was shocking for many people when they woke up this morning realizing the president of the United States was there. But there are a number of hard-right Republicans who have been really, really critical of him, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Andy Biggs, a number of people. How much influence do those Republicans have on the caucus and, and the Republicans, who, especially who are controlling the House now? I hope they don't have a lot because they're wrong. Uh, what Biden did uh, today on President's Day, and he's not a, of my party, but it was extraordinary. Uh, it was also historic, uh, both from a personal risk point of view, uh, for the risk of Ukraine, a 10-hour train ride without uh, all the Secret Service accoutrement that he's used to having, uh, and send a power, very powerful message uh, to the world that we are standing with of uh President Zelensky. So here on President's Day, he visits another president in another country and highlights that and committed to a $500 million uh, package. Because the fact is, and Marjorie Taylor Greene can ask, answer this in a debate. I'll be happy to debate her. Uh, we either pay now, uh, with money and ammunition and weapons systems to defeat the Russians, or we will pay later with blood and treasure. 
And, and Donna, I mean, there's, as Rick just said, there's, there's going to be payment for this. Um, the president has said the United States is going to stick with Ukraine as long as possible. But can, the, can Ukraine really count on Congress, especially as Republicans are now controlling the House, to continue the support uh, for Ukraine in the way that we've seen it? Yeah, I think that um, these Republicans and maybe there might be a couple of Democrats are real real outliers here. I think uh, the majority of the Congress, Republicans and Democrats, House and Senate, uh, support uh, continuing the support for Ukraine. And I think that's right. I mean, this is really a fight for democracy. And if the United States isn't going to stand on the side of Ukraine with the rest of our allies, then uh, we're saying that we'd turn our back on democracy. And I just don't think that either Republicans or Democrats will be there. Yes, there's going to be some more scrutiny over the money and the way that it's um, it's spent. But I think that by and large, when it comes down to it, Ukraine is going to have the resources that it needs from the United States. You know, a couple of big audiences for the president when he spoke uh, uh, in Kiev. One was the American people, the American Congress, saying we're going to stick with Ukraine. Uh, one was our NATO allies, uh, the worldwide uh, coalition that has helped support Ukraine. One was Vladimir Putin, who speaks tomorrow, gives a kind of state of the nation address uh, defending uh, the invasion of Ukraine on the, uh, and the anniversary of it. So Biden had Putin in mind as well when he made that speech today. And as you as you talk about sort of the American people being part of this calculation, I want to point out that our latest polling shows half the country believes Congress should be providing more funding and weapons to Ukraine. What do you make of that? And how important is that when you think about the support of the American people for this? Well, it makes a difference. I mean, if you polling like that helps stiffen the spine of Congress when they're thinking about where they're going to cut. And we, of course, we hear a lot about the need for budget discipline and, and deficit reduction. So it matters there. But, you know, nobody could should assume that kind of support continues forever uh, because we are with Ukraine. Uh, but there'll come a time when Americans will think we've been there long enough. This came with Afghanistan. It came with Iraq. It came with Vietnam. We are committed. And yet it's not an open ended commitment. And that's, that's one reason. And that's one reason I think U.S. officials are trying to think about ways. What would victory look like? How could you settle this war in a way that's acceptable to us and acceptable to Ukraine? But I think it's all the more reason that President Biden's visit um, today to Ukraine was really important because I think it continues to, you have to elevate this for the American people. And when that happens, then Congress is going to stand in the right place. Well, he did, he did, he elevated for the American people. But as Susan said, which I think is equally as important, yeah. is it was a severe blow to Vladimir Putin because he's supposed to explain the progress in the war. And it's very hard to explain progress in the war when the president of the United States is walking around outside in Kiev. Yeah. Really yeah. remarkable. Well, I also want to turn, of course, to 2024. And Rick, there's, you know, I think it was really interesting to see Governor Larry Hogan say, if I enter this race and it becomes more crowded, I might not want to do that. And it, I don't want to help um, former President Trump because we saw, of course, in 2016 what a crowded field meant to him. Do you think that there's a possibility that more people might think like him? And could even Ron DeSantis running it possibly in the same lane as Donald Trump, could he dilute maybe the Trump vote? One would think so. But remember, Michigan just elected crazy again to be there. I mean, the media would never report on a national chairman's or a state chairman's race, uh, except that the Republican Party is going to crazy land. And I, you can see it in the Biden, politically speaking, Biden reelection. It's already the, it's competence versus crazy. That's going to be their message. And when the Republicans keep doing crazy things and putting up crazy people, Larry Hogan sort of represents the calm, rational uh, Republican of yesteryear, I guess. I don't want to say that because he may have a, a very bright future. He's, he's, he's 
uh, perfectly capable. He, he won uh, Maryland overwhelmingly, a, a Democratic uh, state, and he has demonstrated uh, you can win as a Republican. You can win with uh, a Democrat. You can win with African Americans. Uh, and our our party, the Republican Party, has got to decide uh, that that's either their future or, or the minority status forever will be their future. But that's assuming that you get to a general election. I think the problem for Larry Hogan um, and for other Republicans who are traveling in that lane is that there's no place for them in today's Republican Party. And I think, you know, both Nikki Haley and uh, Ron DeSantis are trying to have it both ways. They want to appeal to part of that Trump base, and then they want to appeal to the not-so-crazy uh, part of the Republican Party. And unfortunately, those are, things are like oil and water. And Susan, it's, it's fascinating as we think about this to also think that Ron DeSantis is out there going to blue cities, going to, to Staten Island, going to to, to Chicago to talk to police unions. What do you make of, of those decisions? But also this ramp up is, are we just going to keep seeing him ramp up and ramp up until he finally announces? Well, it, it's clear to me that he's running for president. I mean, it may not be clear to Ron DeSantis, but I think everyone else understands he's running for president. It's a question of what is the right timing. I mean, in some ways, Nikki Haley is out there the first one challenging Trump, maybe trying to see what, how, well, whether the water's fine to be a challenger to Trump this time. Uh, but Ron DeSantis is running. He has an incredible strength in Florida, which is an important state. Big double-digit reelection. But he is an, an outlier in that year. Yeah, and he, but he is an untested national candidate. Absolutely. And the scrutiny you get as a presidential candidate is different than the scrutiny you get as a gubernatorial candidate. And Rick, is there really a lane for a moderate Republican when you think about 2024? Someone like Chris Sununu has been who's been thinking about running. Um, look, I'd like to think so. And I kind of reject the word moderate, right? Because the, the MAGA likes to own the conservative label. If you look at their policies, I wrote a book on this, but, but they are not conservatives. They're MAGA, right? Which is very different from an ideological. So I would like to, I, instead of moderate, I, I sort of take exception and want to use the word rational, reasonable, <laughs> competent. Um, yes, I think there is a lane uh, for that. And I don't think that Nikki Haley is finding it because, as you said, um, she's talking, she talks about Donald Trump the way she talked about the Confederate flag in South Carolina for five years before she did anything about it. And I don't think you can have it both ways. Stand on principle and, and run on principle. Don't, don't say, oh, Donald Trump is good in some way. He did a resurrection and I'm not resurrected, an insurrection right across the street here. How is that forgivable? I don't see how it is. Yeah. Um, and, and Donna, there's this idea, of course, the Democrats, it seems like they're largely sticking to President Biden. But I wonder, do you think that there's any, um, might there be any regret there if President Trump um, isn't the nominee and you have him running against someone who might be younger, who might be seen as someone who, who's just really more, more able to do the job for longer? Of course, you know, Biden is saying, I'm, I can do this physically, mentally. I just think at this stage, I mean, Democrats have really come to a conclusion that uh, Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. He's the incumbent president. They are going to stand united uh, with him and get him over whatever the hump is that uh, that some perceive that he has. And frankly, I think that Joe Biden is leading a kind of Democratic Party that is the rational party. And no matter what Republicans do, they still have that 35 whatever percent of their base that is really not going in the right direction. Yeah. Well, a lively conversation. I could talk to all of you for a long time, but that's what we'll have to do it. Thank you so much, Donna, Rick, and Susan. And still to come, the federal government's latest moves as concerns grow in Ohio. Weeks after that toxic train wreck, we're on the ground with the latest next. You're watching Meet the Press Now.
Welcome back. FEMA is sending a team to East Palestine, Ohio, amid fallout from a train derailment and fire earlier this month. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown says FEMA, the, says the FEMA team will be on the ground to monitor and support the community. It comes as residents of the town continue to express concerns over the health effects of the toxic chemicals released into the environment by the train fire. Some residents say they're feeling ill. But officials maintain there is no evidence of toxicity. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg called on the CEO of the train company, Norfolk Southern, to demonstrate unequivocal support for the people of East Palestine and to commit to increased rail safety measures. The rail CEO visited the town for the second time since the accident this weekend. NBC's George Solis has more. Now, we know FEMA already has boots here on the ground. But in addition to that, we know that the Department of Health and Human Services will be partnering with the Ohio Department of Health to open a health clinic here in East Palestine as early as tomorrow. And that is to address the growing health concerns here in this community. Mind you, officials have said there is no evidence to show that anything related to the derailment has made anyone sick. But we know a number of people have reported headaches, rashes and feelings of nausea that they believe are associated to that derailment. In addition to that, a lot of people in this community are upset over an appearance by Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw over the weekend. Now, we know he met with some local leaders and business owners, but he did not meet with the majority of residents in this town who wanted to voice their frustrations about their health concerns. Mind you, Norfolk Southern says they are committed to this community. They say they've already paid some $2.6 million to residents and business owners for their losses. We know lawsuits are also starting to mount against the company. The Ohio Attorney General announcing that his office is considering a lawsuit against the company as the investigation into the derailment continues. Of course, the major concern here for a lot of residents is their water. Some officials saying if your well water has not been tested or if you just simply don't feel safe drinking the water, perhaps best to stick to drinking bottled water. Back to you. A difficult situation there in Ohio. George, thank you so much for that reporting. And turning now to the Turkey-Syria border, site of yet another earthquake today, just two weeks after two earthquakes in the region killed more than 46,000 people. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, today's 6.3 magnitude earthquake centered in southern Turkey. The Turkish government says three people there have died and 213 were injured. The Syrian Civil Defense reports no deaths there, but more than 130 people injured. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was in Turkey yesterday surveying damage in one of the hardest hit provinces. He took a helicopter tour with his Turkish counterpart and then met with aid workers. Blinken also announced another $100 million in disaster assistance. And that does it for us this hour. We're back tomorrow with more Meet the Press Now. NBC News Now coverage continues with Tom Costello.